Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. <laughs> you remember you remember Exodus 3? You remember when Moses sees the burning bush? And he goes over to the burning bush. And he jumps around and he's all happy. He's like, oh, that's cool, God. Doesn't really change him, no big deal. You remember that scene? Nope. Thank you. I don't either. I do remember the scene where Moses comes and he sees the burning bush and he tentatively approaches it and he's told, take your shoes off. Why? Because the ground on which you walk is holy. Why? Because our great God was in his presence. You remember when Moses comes before God and they're getting ready to go into the land and Moses' request is what? Would you just let me see your glory? <laughs> and God says, uh-uh, you'll die. You remember Leviticus 19? Probably not, not a chapter we memorize that often. Leviticus 19, it, it starts with you are to be holy, because why? Because I'm holy. And then Leviticus 19 is filled with rule after rule after rule after rule after rule after rule, and then another rule. And you know what? We get to the end of Leviticus 19, and you know what it says when you start Leviticus 20? Be holy, because I'm holy. But then you know what God says? He says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You can't do it. You can't be holy. <laughs> God says, I'm holy. I'm holy. And you're to be holy, but you can't be. But guess what? I'm the God who sanctifies you. I'm the God who makes you holy. We read in Psalm 99 that we started our time with, we see three times that God is testified to be holy. We get glimpses of heaven and those around the throne are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, both in Isaiah and in Revelation. And then we read this astounding statement that God becomes flesh and we behold his glory. He dwells among us and we behold his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I just fear sometimes we walk in and we get so casual that we forget that we serve a holy God. A God who is transcendent, above, beyond all that we can fathom. A God in whom resides no sin, no imperfection, no shortcoming, no evil. A God who is truly awesome. A God who is holy. That's the God we worship. Well, we need to turn to Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is our text today as we begin into a series in Matthew. I was thinking this week, you know, we all have probably words or sayings in our family that are maybe kind of somewhat unique to us. I remember growing up, a word that I, I didn't think was that unique. It was just kind of a word I thought I knew the meaning of, and I remember saying it to someone, and they looked at me like I was crazy. Maybe some of you say this, but growing up, if I asked Dad, 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 can we go fishing? Yeah. When? And Dad would say, Trekley. I tried to write Trekley in my notes. I don't even know how to spell Trekley. I can't figure out. I've got different options of how I should spell Trekley. I don't know if any of you use Trekley. But I came to realize that I don't think Trekley is a real word. And I don't really know exactly what it means. I can't define it except for I know that it doesn't mean now and it doesn't mean a mark time, but it means directly. I, I don't know. But when Dad would say directly, I got excited. I, I was waiting. I was ready because I knew that at some time Dad was going to say, let's go, and we would go. So directly to me was meaningful. It filled me with anticipation. In the Old Testament the people were awaiting, they were anxiously looking forward to the Messiah. And I guess maybe in common terms or Meadows house growing up terms, God has somewhat said, I'm going to send the Messiah. When, God? When? When are you going to send him? Directly. Okay. <laughs> well, he wins directly. I don't know, but he's going to do it. That's what we have in Matthew 1. We have a moment when the people who had been waiting on God to fulfill his promises and been waiting for the time to come for him to fulfill his word, to, to be faithful to his word, and they were just anticipation, or anticipating, and it was, it was boiling over. And so you and I come to the study of Matthew, and it's easy to open up Matthew and go, okay, it's a new book to study, here we go. But the reality is when we turn and we read the book of Matthew, there is a, a weightiness of significance in Matthew. Because all of redemptive history up to this point had been boiling over in great anticipation for when directly was answered. And we read Matthew of the coming of Christ, the testimony of the life of Christ. We read a, a moment in which the, the hopes of all the Old Testament saints were fulfilled. As they looked forward to the Messiah, the hope of God's people was made real. Evident before them, we beheld his glory. We, we just studied the book of Ruth, and most of you were here for that study. We talked about four different stories in the book of Ruth, and we ended last week talking about the fact that Ruth was a story in the midst of his story, the midst of God's greater story. So when we come to Matthew, we understand that Matthew is a part of that same story. We just find ourselves a few chapters down the road in the story. And so we're still looking at another moment in God's greater story in the book of Matthew. Before we read today, we're going to read the genealogy of Christ. And before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Matthew, just to kind of set the stage for where we're going. The, the book of Matthew is written by Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. He was a disciple of Christ. It was written most likely sometime in, in the early 60s AD. So you're talking it was, it was penned sometime just after the life of Christ. The disciples would have orally been telling these stories and recounting them. And then Matthew, praise the Lord by the leading of the Holy Spirit, wrote down what they had told and remembered. He wrote his account of the gospel. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. 
And so you'll, you'll see when we study Matthew, you'll see that there is a lot of references to Jewish life, to the Old Testament. It is the most Jewish focused of all the Gospels. But interestingly, even though it's the most Jewish focused, it's also very clear that God's mission was to the Gentiles. And so he comes to the Jews, he's speaking to the Jews in that context, but he is very clear that God's grace and salvation is not limited to the Jews, but God is the God of the nations. So the book of Matthew is rooted in the Old Testament. You'll, you'll notice as we read and, and get into it, not as much today, but in the days and weeks ahead, you'll see Matthew constantly saying, in order to fulfill the Scriptures, he's constantly pulling us back to the Old Testament because he understands that, that Christ's life is rooted in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, though, not only is it focused on Jews and written to Jews, it also is the gospel that has the most um, uh, antagonistic or combative, I don't know, combative is probably not the best word to use, but, but uh, encounters between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. We see the most tension among Jesus and the Jewish leaders in the book of Matthew. Matthew paints a, a beautiful picture of who Christ is that is rooted in the Old Testament. And so the portrait of Jesus that we're going to see in the book of Matthew is we will see that Jesus is a true or the true and better Abraham heir of God's promises, his covenant promise. We'll see Jesus as the new and better Moses, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. We see Jesus in the book of Matthew as the new and better David, the perfect king of all kings. We see in Matthew that Jesus is the new and better Jonah, the one who would be buried three days and rise again from the grave. We see in Matthew that Jesus is the new and better Solomon, full of wisdom from the Father. We'll see in Matthew that Jesus is the new and better temple, the one which would be torn down and rebuilt and three days later upon the cross. We're going to see in Matthew that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the King, the Lord of Lords. That's the testimony of Matthew. Let's read the genealogy of Christ as Matthew begins his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, to that point, that should have sounded very familiar to many of you. Why? That's the exact genealogy that we just finished with in Ruth. So Ruth is just repeated here except for Matthew does add the names Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth into those accounts. The next section there, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. Verse 7, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. 
Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There, for those of you who are anxiously awaiting the pronunciation of all those words and names, there you have it. I'm not going to read it again because I'll probably pronounce them differently the next time. The secret to that, by the way, is just to pronounce them with confidence, right? Okay, if you're ever reading the genealogy in Sunday school. So let's look at this quickly this morning. First, let's look at at verse 1. This is the start of Matthew's testimony of the life of Christ. And we mentioned that there's an importance with Jesus, uh, with Matt, or importance for Matthew to connect Jesus to the Old Testament, and, and this is something that is important for us to recognize because there, there are teachings in our day of people that say, you know, you don't really need the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not important. Just leave it aside, cast it aside. It's even been said that we should quote unquote unhitch from it. Was a big catchword a few years back from a, a popular pastor of our day. Should we do that? Well, absolutely not. Matthew would totally stand opposed to that idea. And this isn't something that's just new to our day. It's not something that, oh, we've arrived in the 21st century, and so now maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't give credence to the Old Testament. We shouldn't look to the Old Testament. No, this is a heresy as old as the church. There was a, a guy named Marcion. He was the, the son of a bishop. He, you might could say he's a, a preacher's kid. He, he came to the church at Rome in the 130s, And he came, when he came, he gave a really, really large monetary gift to the church. A a very significant monetary gift. It's like a a year's worth of wages, I think it was, that he gave to the church. And he he gives this gift, and he comes in, he's an active part of the church, he's very influential in the church. And he begins teaching quite convincingly that you don't need the Old Testament. That you leave the Old Testament out, it should be disregarded, it should not be used. And so the church excommunicated him. He was removed. This is an attack on the Word of God that that is not new. The idea that, well, we just don't need the Old Testament. that, That is wrong. That is wrong. It should be rejected. The Old Testament is the Word of God. And it gives a beautiful testimony of both the character of God and the works of God. And we should not leave it behind. We don't just ditch it. The Old Testament gives testimony to who the Messiah is, the, the prophecies of the Messiah. We can't just divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. We learn more about who God is, how he operates, how he's planned out redemption. And we have to remember that that the entire canon of Scripture, the entire Old Testament, New Testament, is indeed the Word of God. It is indeed the greater story of God's plan of redemption in his creation. 
we understand that. We understand that in any story, there's background passages. There's passages that give details that maybe aren't the most exciting chapters of the book. There are passages that, are co- uh, that go through ups and downs, valleys, mountaintops, and we read it. We understand it. It's the same thing with God's narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We understand that it is the Word of God. Matthew understands the importance of that, and so should we. He begins by saying, the book of the genealogy. The book of the genealogy. Now, literally, if you just translate very literal from the Greek, it would say book of Genesis or book of origin. He's intentionally leading his readers to think back to Genesis. There's only two other places in all of Scripture that this exact wording is used, and it's both times in Genesis. Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. That's the only time that that exact wording is used in Scripture. And so when the Jewish readers would read this, right away they're drawn back to the beginning, the book of origins, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Listen, when he says this, he, he's drawing us to the fact that this is indeed a new moment, a new beginning. Some would interpret this as him saying that this is the moment of a new creation that is ushered in by the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. There's, there's various ideas of why exactly he did this. I would say he definitely is saying, listen, I want you to know that the life of Christ, the coming of Christ is anchored into the work of God from the very beginning and it is continuing. This is a new and important chapter. That's why it was important for us to meditate on John 1.14, to remember that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. It's important for us to remember the words of John 1.1 that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John begins there. John, John's gospel starts by saying, I want you to know that the testimony of Jesus starts way beyond creation because he is the eternal, almighty God made flesh. See, the purpose of John's gospel was to proclaim and show the deity of Christ. The purpose of Matthew's gospel is a little different. He's showing that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the king, the heir of the covenant promised to Abraham. And so he begins, and he's rooted there. He is not saying this is the beginning of Jesus Christ's existence. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is this is the testimony, the beginning of Christ's life on earth as he comes to save a people for himself. And so it is the book of the genealogy, the book of origins. He gives three titles to Jesus here in verse 1. Three titles. First, he says, Jesus Christ. He's going to explain that later in verse 21, so we're not going to go into that really today. We'll look at that next, actually two weeks from now. But he does say and explain that Jesus, he says genealogy of Jesus Christ. He'll explain that later. What is important for us today and what I want to make sure you know today is that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. He is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior. That's what we need to know today. He is proclaiming right away as he begins that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. The second thing he says about Christ is that he is the son of David. The son of David. This means that Jesus has royal lineage. His royal lineage. He is the heir of the exalted, the venerated king of Israel. So when the people read this, that he is the son of David, they understand Isaiah 9, 6-7, a passage that we have read and you hear a lot around Christmas. says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then here's the relevant portion for you today. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, now the prophet Nathan comes and speaks to David and he tells David, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established for." Ever, forever. The Messiah was to be from the line of David, the lineage of David. And Matthew starts out with the very purpose to say he is indeed, Jesus Christ is indeed heir of the king, the son of David. The third title he gives him is the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham, that that he is heir to the covenant promise of blessing to the nations. Pastor Michael read from Genesis chapter 12. And Genesis chapter 22, and he, he read to us to remind us this morning that the covenant promise was one that the, that the people would be blessed, all the nations, all the peoples of all the nations would be blessed through who? Through Abraham, through Abraham. And so Jesus is now coming as the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. It begins with the idea to remember that he is the son of Abraham, the one to which all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you know and remember how Matthew's gospel ends? Do you recall? Matthew 28 is the last chapter of the Bible. You might know how it ends. Go and make disciples to the Jews. No? Go and make, the disciple, go and make disciples of your nation. No? Go and make disciples who? Yeah, all the nations. Matthew begins and ends focused on the nations. Now, the genealogy, when we get into the genealogy, there's just a few things I want to point out to you. We'll just go in-depth on every name here. Just kidding. First off, I, I would just remind you that Genealogies can be written and used for various reasons, various purposes for generations. Some might seek to show a blood lineage. Some might seek to show a particular heritage. An easy way for me recently, I know you don't really care about this, so to speak, but for me it's important, is that North Carolina has a new basketball coach, Hubert Davis. Right? You don't really care about that, but I do. And I know a good bit about Hubert Davis. I followed his career a little bit. Well, when I read articles about him, you know what the articles say? They trace his heritage, his lineage back through who? Through his coaches. Through Roy Williams and through his coaches in the NBA, through Dean Smith, through Bill Guthridge, his time playing. They, they, co- they trace him back through his North Carolina heritage. Now, I don't read that and go, well, he wasn't born to Roy Williams. He's not Roy Williams' son. They're lying. I don't say that because I understand that those articles that I read that traced his lineage was not talking about a bloodline. It was talking about a heritage for coaching, right? From where he came, what had been passed on to him, who he, who he was under. And so that is somewhat of a lineage that is a little different. We look and we read and go, well, these different genealogies, they, they look different. They have different names. Well, you need to be mindful of the purpose of the genealogies, is that genealogy showing a bloodline? Is it showing a pedigree? What's it showing? So when we come to Luke 3, the, the genealogy is a little different. One is flipped around backwards. It's going 
one way and this one's going the other way. And, and we look and we look at, at Luke and it's pretty commonly held that Luke's genealogy is probably tracing the biological lineage, the bloodline for Christ. But then we come to, to Matthew and, and Matthew's has more, more of a theological or historical purpose to show the messianic heritage that Jesus has. And so the two have different purposes, different reasons. So we come and we look at Matthew 1.1. The reason it's important to think about what it means for him to say Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because that gives us somewhat of a key to understanding why does he list the names that he then lists and what is the, the meaning of this. He's showing the messianic heritage that Christ has. You also need to take note that genealogies can be open or closed. A, a closed genealogy is one that connects every single dot, every single person. An open one is there's gaps in it. That they may connect this person, this person, or maybe three or four in between, but they're just saying you need to know that he's connected here, here, and here. Okay? Matthew's is an open genealogy. There are gaps in it. And so he does that intentionally. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But when he talks about he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham, he's, he's tracing Jesus back through to the beginning of the people of God. He just starts at Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was what? He was the beginning of the people of God. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's just goes to Abraham. Why? Because Matthew is concerned to show that he is the Messiah that has been prophesied for the people of God. Somewhat of an interesting side note. Related to that, Matthew is the only gospel in which the word church is used. Talking about the people of God. You, you saw that Ruth 4, 18 to 22 is referenced there in verses 2 uh, through 6. As we see in our genealogy today, you also might have picked up on the, or the end in verse 17. He says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and then 14 from the, uh, David to the deportation, and then from the deportation to Christ, 14. This is a, actually a literary device. He, he's broken it up. The genealogy is kind of broken up into three blocks, three blocks of 14 generations. There's different ideas of why he did this. All we know for certain is it's likely some type of linguistic tool, but it is not a literal 14 generations because we know that Matthew left out names that everyone have common, would have commonly known. And it's not like Matthew sat down and went, oh man, I just can't think of the genealogy that everybody talks about right now. I don't have the resources to do that. We'll just make up some names. Matthew wouldn't have done that. That would make no sense. It would be illogical to do that. Matthew instead uses some type of linguistic tool to show and express completeness. This completeness, the, the 14, 14, 14 shows completeness. There's a, a linguistic tool uh, that is used that, that is important with numbers. So you have 14, 14, 14. There's also the idea that if you take uh, David's name in, in Hebrew and you count the, give a numeric value to each letter of the name, it adds up to 14. Or if you count the names in here, David's name is the 14th name. And so some people say, well, David is kind of the center and it goes in and out of that. that that's the focus. We don't know exactly. Matthew doesn't clarify that and give us an exact reason. What we know for sure is that he is intent to make a theological case that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the King of kings, and the covenant fulfiller. That's what we know from Matthew. He gives us three timestamps at the end of each block. If you'll notice there in your text, verse 6, he says, Jesse is the father of David, the king. And then at the verse 11, um, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the depor deportation to Babylon, and then at the end, verse 16, uh, the, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
there's kind of three significant moments in time. A time in which David the king comes, a time of great hope and expectation for the people in which they think, oh, here is the king that we've longed for, the one who would be called a man after God's own heart. But then all of a sudden, there's failure after failure after failure after failure of kings, and they come to a point in time in which they're deported out to Babylon. When they're removed, they're exiled to Babylon. This is the hope that they had in the king is gone. They're, they're in a situation that is quite hopeless. There's judgment. There's grief. There's agony. Hope seems to be lost. But then we come back to a great moment of hope in which Jesus the Christ comes, the Savior, the Messiah, and hope is fulfilled. The other thing I would just draw your attention to in the genealogy is that Matthew intentionally highlights five women in his genealogy. He, he brings out names. I told you the difference between this one and the one in Ruth is that he highlights the women in his list. And he highlights five particular names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and, Bar- and Mary. Right Now, here, here's the thing. What's interesting is not that he makes reference to women. Other genealogies reference ladies. If you want to see an example of that, just look at 1 Chronicles 2. There's women all throughout that genealogy. So it's not like, he mentioned women. That's not what's going on here. Now, what is interesting, what you do want to note, is why does he mention these women? Right? Just think about these women for a minute. Tamar is the scandalous daughter-in-law of Judah from Genesis 38. We talked about her last week. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho. Ruth was a dreaded Moabite. Bathsheba had committed adultery with David. And Mary would be the one who is a virgin found to be with child before marriage. Right? So people that, there are ladies that, that culture may look out and go, ooh, I don't know about them. You know, they're kind of shady characters. And he pulls them out and says these are how God has used people throughout history to bring about the Messiah. Here are the people that he has worked in and worked through to carry out his perfect plan. He's pointing us back to know that Jesus' heritage includes men, it includes women, it includes Gentiles, scandalous sinners, a victim of a king's prideful lust, it includes cultural outcasts, so that we might know that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. I want to just give you kind of four things that I would say we can take away from genealogy today. When we look at the genealogy and we, we look at the names he points to, we look at the way he traces it, the way he focuses on completion with the numbers of 14 generations that we know historically don't equal the, the, four, the three blocks, don't equal each other. But he's stressing completion, he's He's focusing on this, this heritage of Christ. I'm going to give you four takeaways today. Here's the first one. Is that God always, always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. Every time we turn to the genealogy and scripture, it should remind us that God is faithful to do what he says he will do. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is faithful to do what he says he will do. And we read the genealogy, we should be reminded at the very beginning that the God who was the God of David, the God of Abraham, is the God who sent Christ to live on this earth and to die for us, to save us from our sins. In 1 Kings 8.56, Solomon is blessing the temple. 
Here's what he says. He says, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. Now listen to what he says. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke to Moses, his servant. Not one word. Solomon is standing before the people, and they're, they're dedicating the temple, and he says, God is faithful. Everything that he promised, he has done. We read the same thing, Hebrews 10, 23, where we're told to let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because we're faithful? No. The reason we're to hold fast to the confession of our hope is because he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. God's faithful. Christ is faithful. So the promise to Abraham, fulfilled. The promise to David, fulfilled. The promise to send the Messiah, fulfilled. Matthew is driving that home and showing the history of God's work. Listen, those of you in here who are believers, this should be a great comfort to you. This should be something that we come to and we read and we read all these names and think about these lives of very real people who had very real sin that were part of God's very real plan. It should be a comfort to us that God is working, that God is faithful to keep his word. It should comfort us to know that he will do what he says he will do. We find great comfort in that. But those of you who are unbelievers today, you should look to this and go, God is faithful. And it should strike a little nerve in you to make you uncomfortable and unsettled because God indeed keeps his word. And one of the things that God has said is he will come to judge the quick and the dead. He will come to claim his kingdom. He will take his people back unto himself to live forever in him with heaven. And he will exact wrath and punishment and justice on those who are outside of Christ, who have not been saved and trusted Christ. They will receive wrath from God Almighty. They will be punished. God has said he will punish the ungodly. He said he will. And we see time and time again that God is faithful to do what he says he will do. And in that moment, it's not going to matter what your opinion is. It's not going to matter how good of a person you are. It's not going to matter where you grew up or who your parents are or how many times you sat and listened to a sermon. That's not going to matter. What's going to matter is have you turned from your sins and turned to Christ and trusted him in faith. That's what will matter in that moment. Are you saved? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, the perfect spotless blood of the Lamb that was poured out on the cross? Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? If you do, Scripture says you will be saved. But if that's not you, if that's not you, Scripture says in Romans 2 that you're storing up wrath for yourself. That's just strike. A little bit of fear in you. I hope it would be an eye-opening moment that you would say, God is faithful. He's always shown himself to do what he said he was going to do. So if he said he's going to do that, I better be ready. The second takeaway from the genealogy of Christ is that we need to be patient in waiting for Christ's return. We should be patient in waiting for Christ's return. Think about the generations represented here. Generation after generation after generation had waited for the Messiah, had waited for him to come. They had waited and looked forward and go, is it, is it here? God, you said directly, when is it? When is it? When is it? I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Life comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. Until Galatians 4, 4 through 5 describes it. 
as saying, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, listen, the directly was fulfilled. In that moment, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And so we look at this and we think this is generation after generation after generation of people looking forward to the Messiah. People who are anticipating the coming of the Messiah ever since the garden when God first gave a, a, a glimmer of hope to say that there will be one who will crush the head of Satan. I will send him. And from that moment, God, or God's people have been anticipating and looking forward. And now in Matthew, it's here. And so we realize their hope is fulfilled. They had been patiently waiting, and we too should patiently wait because Christ has said he will indeed return. He will return. I would, I would just want you to hear this morning, 2 Peter chapter 3. When we think about we should be patient for Christ's return. Listen to this. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1 through verse 10 for your notes. It says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through our, your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what they're scoffing about. That's what they're saying. They're, what are you doing? <laughs> You're hoping Jesus will come? You're silly. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You really think Jesus is coming back? I mean, look, everything's going on just like it's going on for years. You're wasting your time. They're scoffing. They're making fun. Yeah. Novel idea. Peter, I mean, yeah, Peter, in God's Word, told us people were already going to be saying that. And they are. But in verse 5, he says, for these people, these scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the, that the heavens existed Sorry, I lost my place there. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, listen, they're failing to remember and realize and look over all of history and see how God has worked in his timing to carry out his plan. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one Fact, Peter says, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed when we look to the genealogy and we see the faithfulness of god in sending christ it should encourage us to patiently await and trust in the faithfulness of god to send christ to come back and to claim his kingdom in the end we should have patience third takeaway god's plan is for the nations to rejoice and be glad in him we look at the genealogy, we should be encouraged to remember that God's plan is for the nations to rejoice and be glad in Him. The genealogy included Jews, Canaanites, Hittites, Moabites, all because God is a global 
God. He is not regional. He is not an American God. He is not a Bible about God. He is the God of all creation who made all men in his image. He is God Almighty. And we need to know and look at this and we see this. We need to know that his royal heritage was from the nations. His reason for coming included the nations. And the mission that he gave the church is to the nations. We need to understand that when we look at the genealogy. That God is the God who has sent us on a mission to the nations. That they might rejoice and be glad in him. As Psalm 67 puts it. And the fourth takeaway is that our sins are many. Our sins are many. But God's mercy is more. God's mercy is more. It will always be more. It, you know, we already noted earlier that, that Tamar and, and Rahab were not exactly upstanding saints. They, they weren't like your picture of, wow, that is a really just squeaky clean person. They're never going to make it an election in our country. Never. Right? But, you know, there were others in the list that weren't exactly perfect either. If I remember correctly, David committed adultery and murder and lied. A list of other sins. Some people say every one of the Ten Commandments was broken in that one act in David's life. And, and, and also, it seems like Solomon gave himself over to all sorts of false gods that brought him to chase after other religions. The, the man of wisdom. They, they had their sins. J.C. Ryle notes, I thought it was really interesting, he notes that, that Rehoboam, Joram, Amos, and Jeconiah were all wicked men. They were just wicked, sinful men included in this genealogy. But you know what? You know what's interesting about those men? Their parents were godly. Their, their, their fathers were godly fathers. And so we look to this and we, we think, you know what? Righteousness does not come through the family. It's not like the family flows righteousness to our kids so that our kids are saved. No, righteousness comes through the blood of Christ. Our children need more than good families, more than good examples to live godly lives. They need salvation. They need to be saved by Christ. They need the blood of Christ. And so we as families aren't like the conduits of grace. Christ is the conduit of grace. It also means this. You can flip it around. Parents, that you may, you may have a, a child that is in utter rebellion, that does not walk with the Lord. That does not mean that you are not a follower of Christ. It doesn't mean that you're not successful. It doesn't mean that you didn't do what you were called to do. It's not a reflection upon you. If you sought to teach them and instruct them and raise them in the admonition of the Lord, they made decisions to pursue their own sinfulness and fleshly desires. We see that in the genealogy. Be faithful. Listen, the genealogy reminds us that God did not send Christ because we were righteous. He sent Christ because we were wicked. He sent Christ because we are sinful. He sent Christ because we have no hope of our own. He sent Christ because we can't merit salvation. He sent Christ because we're not good enough. And so the genealogy indeed includes the sinful, but it includes the religious too. See, Christ sent, or God sent Christ, Jesus came. Why? Because Ephesians 2 says you were dead. 
We were dead, all of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. That's who all of these in the list were. That's who every person walking the face of this earth is. Outside of Christ, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. But it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. The genealogy is like a neon light flashing grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's shouting forth. It's a megaphone declaring the mercy of God on sinners who are in need of his mercy. It is a a, a testimony that Christ came for the rebel. He came for the moral outcast. He came for the adulterer. He came for the foolish one captivated by the world. He came for wicked children. He came for righteous parents. He came for those worshiping false gods. He came for those who are broken, victimized, lonely, blind, and suffering. He came for you. He came for me. Praise God, he came. His mercy is more. So we turn to the genealogy and we look to our great Savior, full of mercy and grace. And we give thanks to him that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks be to God for sending Christ. And thanks be to God for leading Matthew to record the life of Christ for us to look to and study. Let's pray. Father, we...